The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to, to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Well, we often plan our preaching series uh, several months in advance, and as we drew closer to this passage, knowing that it came up, two thoughts crossed my mind. The first was, I wonder if I can be sick that day. <laughs> and the second thing was, I hope no visitors are here. Well, unfortunately, I feel terrific. <laughs> I feel fine. And if you're visiting, welcome. You came on a great Sunday, a great Valentine's Day Sunday. And uh, we're glad that you're here. You decided to visit a church on the Sunday that we talk about lust and, and divorce. And, um, but don't worry, come back in a couple weeks, we'll talk about money. It'll be uh, much more comfortable. <laughs> I'm not kidding. You just look down and, and there we go. Uh, but what good, what good words that Jesus has for us today. Um, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he's teaching principles uh, of, of his followers to live by, principles for disciples of faithful followers, how to love God in every area of our life. And he's talking about the most dangerous areas of our life. He's talking about the most important things in our life. And of course, as he is loving the crowds and, and teaching them truth, he is going to get into areas that really dig deep into our hearts, that really touch on our deepest passions, our deepest longings and desires in our life. He's going to hit on topics that are, that are weighty. We want him to. We expect him to. If he's talking about matters of life and death and of things of the kingdom of God and, and things of, of, of hell and heaven, we want him to be serious and authentic and real and get down to the things that are most weighty. And he doesn't avoid that, and neither should we. Like sexual ethics or wealth or integrity, Jesus covers them all because he knows how much and how powerful uh, these things have in our heart, and how much uh, they affect us. Uh, when I even shared this passage with someone this week asking for prayer, um, came up with a good scenario. He recommended to me that I just merely read this passage and then, and then remain silent for about 30 minutes and just let it speak for itself. And I'm reconsidering uh, his advice. But, but think of this. I mean, the words that we read, this, it really does stand on its own, doesn't it? The words of Christ, they're self-evident. They're uh, self-supporting. They stand on their own. They give instruction that are clear. Jesus talks about something so important, and, and the point is clear. But I will speak, and uh, there are a few preliminary points I want to make before we really dig in. First, my attempt this morning is to be narrow. I mean, there's so much to talk about. Uh, narrow, I want to be narrow to the point of this passage. Um, there's much to talk about relating to the biblical sexual ethic. Uh, I won't get into all of that. Uh, there's so much to talk about regarding marriage and divorce. I won't get into all of that. There's so much. I need to restrain myself so that I actually am faithful to preach this passage. Um, 
It's much more can be said, so just know that. Uh, if you're, you will leave feeling, I have so many more questions, and that's okay. Um, in time and by God's providence as we work through his word, uh, we pray those will be answered. The second thing is I'll focus more on verse 27 to 30. Uh, lust rather than divorce, because Jesus picks up the topic of lust, lust at, I'm sorry, divorce and remarriage at greater length in Matthew chapter 19, which we'll get to at the end of the year sometime later. Third, I understand there's a good chance uh, <clears throat> that some, if not many of you, will disagree with what, what is said today, a lot of what is said today. Uh, I hope you don't. I hope you do agree. I hope that you hear God's words and you really consider them, that you digest and, and pray over them. Uh, that you would consider how God would be speaking to you today and that you would decide to trust Him, to trust in His good, his good word and His message uh, that He speaks to us. Um, I want you to know if you disagree with us, then we will not reject you. Uh, we welcome you into this conversation to grow, uh, to hear God's words, uh, to learn uh, where you are skeptical, where you have questions, where you are confused, that we would walk together and learn of, of of what does Christ have for us? What, how would he desire us to live and feel and to think and to live and to relate with one another? And so we will, we will never reject you because you disagree with us. And so we want you to feel that welcome to learn and to grow with us. And fourthly and lastly, I understand that we have a congregation of mis, mixed ages. Um, I will be PG, but I will say the word sex at least 30 times, okay? <laughs> Um, so you're warned. Uh, you do what you need to do uh, with your kids. Um, but let's dig in, and we'll answer three questions this morning, which are evident here. What is lust? Uh, what is the solution to lust? And what is the greatest aim uh, that we should have in our hearts and in our minds? First is, is what is lust? And to answer this, it helps us to consider Jesus' context of his, of his sermon, of his topic here, of talking about lust uh, of the heart. And he's, it starts in chapter 5. Imagine it with me. If you will, Jesus' context as he begins this sermon. The crowds have gathered to him, and he goes on the side of a mountain on a hillside, and he begins to preach to them. And possibly his disciples now, his closest disciples, have gathered close to him, and he begins to preach. Uh, chapter 5 talks about he begins to open his mouth, and he preaches to them, beginning to teach them with the Beatitudes, as we talked about a few weeks ago. He's going to talk to them about the marks of a true disciple. And he begins here in the Sermon on the Mount. And he opens up his mouth and he says, do not murder. And so Jesus is talking about, here's what it means to be a good disciple and a good Christian, a good follower of me. And he starts out with saying, do not murder. And as you imagine, his disciples are saying, oh wow, this, this guy's pretty great. We're doing really good. I mean, this whole following Jesus thing is not too bad. They nod their head in approval and maybe they even uh, give, give shouts of, of acclamation and agreement. Maybe they're clapping and saying, yes, Jesus, it is not good to murder. Maybe they clap in, in approval. They say to one another, this, this Jesus preacher is pretty good. If we don't need to, if, if murdering is the, the limit, we're doing okay. And then Jesus says, but I tell you, if anyone is angry in their heart to a brother, they're liable to judgment just as the murderer is. And so maybe the clapping stops, maybe the murmuring starts, and, and they begin to think, is he serious about this? This is now becoming a little more difficult. And then he moves on and he says, do not commit adultery. And so they maybe clap this time again with approval, uh, but not really knowing where he's going to go next. But they realize, yes, murdering and adultery, those are clear, clear things that should not be done by a follower of Jesus. They, they agree empathetically, but they're a little hesitant. And then he says, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
And they may wonder, what is Jesus doing here? What is he saying? Who could follow this command? And he's showing each of us that, that anger is a sin of a heart, right? That's what we talked about last week. And here he's showing us today that, that lust is a sin of the heart. It's the sort of sin that makes it easy for people to, to live below the line of Scripture. Someone who is be- living below the line of Scripture is a person who says, what is, the, what is the most that I can do without crossing the line? That's, that's what it's like to live below the line of Scripture. What's the most that I can do and still be obedient and still be okay and still be in God's favor without, without crossing the line into the line of you know, being a sinner rejected by God? Where can I live? This is where the Pharisees lived. Pharisees lived below the line of Scripture. What's the least that we can do? and still have favor with God. When it comes to situations where engaged couples or dating couples desiring to remain pure before marriage, they may ask, and they've asked me before, how far is too far? We want to live below the line. We want to know what's the most that we can do without crossing that line into, into, you know, into sex, into, into a biblical view of, of disobedience in this area. What technically is it? How far can we go without breaking the rule. When it comes to money, some might say, what is the least that I can give and still feel like I'm giving faithfully to God? When it comes to situations of forgiveness, many have asked, what is the least amount of times I need to forgive someone who has wronged me before I can just be done with them forever? How close can I stretch God's commands before they snap? How far can I stretch them? And so as here, the religious people, Jesus is speaking about how they had these laws, the letter of the law, but they didn't have the spirit of the law. It was behavior that they were concerned about. And as long as you didn't exercise this behavior, then you were okay. As long as it didn't come out of your heart and into actions, then you were okay and free from condemnation. But Jesus says, your heart is what matters. So what is lust? Here are four four points, real brief. (laughs) What is lust? Lust is a misplaced and impersonal desire. The the definition here of the word that Jesus used for lustful desire is not tied explicitly to explicitly to sexual desire. It's talking about any kind of desire that's that out out of place or inordinate, out of proportion. Have you ever seen? uh, I mean, think for a minute. You've seen them, the perfume commercials. You know the names of these perfumes. Obsession, pleasures, these are real, I, I, I searched. Irresistible, poison, euphoria, escape, guilty, fantasy. I see these commercials and I think, are they talking about perfume? You've seen how these actresses like, act when they're, when they're modeling these perfumes. Are they, we're still talking about like smelly water, right? Like, <laughs> like, what are we talking about here? Obsession. Stick with me for a minute. Justin Bieber. <laughs> that better be the first and last time I ever reference. His, his perfume for women is called The Key. And it literally has a key on the perfume. When you buy the perfume, you get a key. I'm not, I promise I'm not kidding. This is supposed to symbolize the key that unlocks your connection with Justin Bieber. People buy this. And, it's, and it's, it's really popular. Because if you have this, then it unlocks this connection that you have with Justin Bieber, and you have something meaningful and purposeful. See, our, our problem with, 
lust is not that it's a bad desire or an evil desire. I mean, maybe the Justin Bieber one might be a little evil, but it's, <laughs> but it's, it's misplaced, okay? It's inordinate. It is a good thing, a good feeling, a good passion for the wrong thing or in the wrong place. When we lust, we are wanting something so strongly, so passionately, that it overtakes us. It exposes our, our lack of satisfaction that we have for the grace of God to satisfy us. And we say effectively and functionally, God, your love for me, your grace for me, your favor for me is not enough. That I need to have this in my life. I need to desire this. I need to obtain this in my life. And so lust is a good desire. It is a passion for the wrong things. Maybe you've heard me say before that, a, that an idol is not a bad thing. An idol is a, is, a, is a good thing that is in the wrong place in our life. Is a thing we desire most or desire too much. It's something that we desire and place over God and his influence on our life. And so that's what lust is. It's a misplaced and impersonal desire. It's disconnected from any real relationship with another person. Number two, lust des- destroys the beauty of God's design for sex. You realize that sex is never forbidden in Scripture, but it's, instead it's regulated? It's never forbidden. It's, it's regulated for our benefit. I mean, if you read the Song of Solomon, you will blush. You will blush if, if, you, if you tend to blush uh, related to things that make you uncomfortable as it relates to sex and, and, and uh, passion and erotic language. God's design for sex is for our benefit. It is a beautiful design of complete relational unity. And that is why sex is equated with oneness. That's why marriage is equated with becoming one. That is why the Bible um, speaks strongly against any context in which sex is utilized or used or exercised outside of a biblical marriage because it is, is becoming one with that person. And so lust seeks to be united in one way and not united to a person completely in all the other ways. And there's a very strong message today coming through that says this, you have to affirm that it is healthy and appropriate and liberating on every level for any two consenting adults to express their sexual desires in any way they desire. That is the strong, unfiltered message that we hear today through so many pathways and avenues. And then there is, of course, those who say the opposite, that say sex is a, is a huge problem in our culture. We need to remove it from the presence of our, of our civil, civic conversation, from our cultural narrative. And in doing so, many make then sex out to be something dirty and something bad and something sinful. But both are so far from the truth. Sex is God's idea. It's his good gift to be properly stewarded within his design. Lust is a problem not because God is stingy. You see, God is not this stingy God that's saying, okay, I'm going to come up with a bunch of things that you can't do that you really want to do. He's not stingy. He does it because he is generous. He is so generous. He understands how powerful the craving of lust is that the only place it could be exercised with, for true joy and with our true benefit in mind is when it is enjoyed in a self-giving, whole life, deeply connected, permanent relationship. It is the most powerful God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being. Sex says this, 
I don't know who quoted this, but I know it's a guy. I give you my entire life, and I'm expressing that with sex. <laughs> I think a guy said that. My whole life is yours, and the way that I can express that best is by giving you my body, giving you my vulnerability, opening myself up to you. Pastor Tim Keller from his book, The Meaning of Marriage, says this, It is God's appointed way of saying to another person, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. We must not use sex to say anything less. And so lust destroys the beauty of God's design and intention for sex. Third, lust isolates you from the people you are called to love. See, lust is a, is a, is a fantasy of the mind where you practice out your selfishness and manipulation on another person. The more familiar you become with the comfort of lust, the less you attempt to fully engage or relate to the people you are called to love. The more you engage in, in thoughts and fantasies of lust and selfishness and manipulation of another person, the less you will more fully engage with your spouse. If you're married or single, lust hinders your ability to truly engage in meaningful relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe this is a good place to talk about how lust is not just a guy issue. Can we do that? Uh, ladies, have you ever fantasized about someone who is not your husband? Now, likely it wasn't physical because men's bodies are disgusting. Um, but <clears throat> have you fantasized about a man who is not your husband as it relates to his work ethic, his sensitivity, his salary, his sense of humor, his charm, his sense of style, his full head of hair. <laughs> <clears throat> With lust in your heart, you say, I want what is not mine. I wish I had him instead. I wish my husband was like that. This is a lust of, it's a fantasy of romance. And just as, uh, uh, just as sexual lust for men and women, but more particularly men, it, sexual lust will twist an understanding of man's, uh, how men should feel about a real woman's body and about real sexual appetite. There is such a thing as, as a romantic lust that twists the perception of a woman about how real men ought to be and behave around them. There's a great chance that the more romantic comedies you watch, the more dissatisfied you become with your husband. There's a direct correlation. Have you noticed? <laughs> the more romantic comedies you watch, the more dissatisfied you will be with the man in your life. Why can't you be more like that? He came back from the dead to love her. Why can't you come back from the dead? <laughs> Pretty woman is not realistic. Right. Tell him my, my wife says, why do you like Lord of the Rings? It's so unrealistic. Yeah, Pretty Woman is pretty realistic. <clears throat> lust is enslaving. Like with all sins, lust promises that we indulge in it. It promises that when we indulge in it, it will go away. It will be satisfied. Doesn't it? Lust says, just just a little bit more, and I promise I'll go away for good. And we say, okay, just a little bit more, 
and our appetite grows. Let's think of appetite. Think of hunger. When we're craving something that we know is not good for us, when we're craving a sweet or a fatty food, when we think to ourselves, if I just eat this, then that craving will go away and I just need a little. And it goes away for a moment and then we crave it even more. Sins of the heart, like lust and anger, make a lot of promises that they never intend to keep. They enslave us in this vicious cycle of temptation and sin and shame. Lust is a desire that is out of bounds and out of balance. It is out of God's design and it takes something good and beautiful and it ruins it. It takes a passion that God has given to us and it destroys it. But in Jesus' pastoral and, and gracious teaching, he never he never intends to expose a sin in our life and in our heart and then leave us to ourselves to find our own path to fix it. He gives us a way forward, a way forward towards rescue. And so after looking at lust, and there's so many, probably more, I started with over seven and I boiled it down to four. There's more, there's more things that lust, what it is and what it does in us, but these are some of the most important ones. So what is the solution? Jesus gives us a path forward. We cut out our eyes and the hands that sin. Cut out our eye and the hand that sins. Jesus means to tell us to cut off the sin at its roots, to cut it out of our lives. It's an invitation from Jesus to do nothing less than to fight sin like a faithful Christian. Practically, what does this mean? Well, practically, Jesus is not advocating self-mutilation. I hope you know that. But rather, he's indicating that the avoidance of temptation may involve drastic and real sacrifice in your life. It may involve drastic changes in the way that you view the world through your eyes and act in the world with your hands. Two different approaches, your eye and your hand, and your eye and hand have two different functions. Your eye is, is by which you see the world and why you see others. Your hand is, is by which you, you, you engage in the world and, and work in the world and act in the world around you. He starts with the eye, your perspective on how you see things and perceive people needs to change. You want to change your lustful desires? You must change the way you view others. It is careful and deliberate acknowledgement of the dangers of lust and the realities of its consequences. It is a naming of all these, these four problems with lust that we just mentioned. It is a, it's a sin of the heart. It's superficial and impersonal. It's misplaced. It, it, it destroys the beauty of God's design in marriage. It, it perpetuates selfishness and manipulation. It robs from those whom we are called to love, and it enslaves us in this vicious cycle. Having a new perspective on lust causes us to, we need to see things differently. We need to say, we need to see it for how it is. We need to say, look at what it's doing in my life. Look at what it's doing in my heart. Look at how it's causing me to treat my sister in Christ in a wicked and evil way. How it's, how it's, treat, it's causing me to look at her like an object for my own pleasure. We need to change the way we look at what we want. It's a, a reorienting of how we look at one another. Not as objects for quick pleasures, but as God's loved image bearers. We want what we love and we love what we worship. And lust, lust is nothing less than worship. It's nothing less than a form of worship for something. We need to understand our desires. They are not harmless. They tell us something. Our desires are there to tell us something, to, to wake us up, to to make us alert to what the problem is. 
you know your check engine light, if it comes on, you know what to do. The check engine light came on in our car not long ago, and if you know me at all, uh, you know that I can't, I need to get that light off or my head will explode. <laughs> and so I take it into AutoZone somewhere and, and get the check engine light checked, for free check, and he goes there and the technician checks it and some codes come back and he says, okay, here's some codes came back, here's what it could be, it could be your fuel pump, um, or it, it could also be your whole entire electrical system is out, uh, or it could be nothing, and we don't really know. I was like, well, what do I do? He's like, well, you can, yeah, you need to get it fixed or it's going gonna, it's gonna to have uh, more problems later. What do I, well, okay, what do we do? And he says, I don't know, you can just drive it around for a while and see if it breaks, and if it breaks, you can bring it back. I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. And so I was like, can you check it again? He's like, sure, I'll go check it again. We go back to the car, and he checks it, and he says, oh, look at that, the code's gone. And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, the check engine light's off. I was like, what does that mean? He's like, oh, you're probably okay. I'm like, I don't know what to do. Am my car going to break or not? It can make us feel insecure sometimes when that desire comes and goes, and we don't know what it means, but we should pay attention to it. Our desires tell us what we worship. It indicates like what's going on in our heart. Our appetites expose what we love and what we long for. It's only when we pay attention that we can correct them. It's only when we know what they're pointing to that we can actually change the way we live. It's only when we look at that and say, God, what, are you, what does this desire mean? What is, what is this telling me? How is this misplaced? Is it in the wrong place? Is it out of proportion from what you desire? So when we look at our passions and say, God, what is going on in my heart? What do I love most? Why do I need this person's approval and their favor? Why do I need their affection? Why am I not content with you? You see, these desires are there to point us to Jesus. And so we need to look at the world differently. We need a new perspective. And then there's the hand. The hand is something different, a change in how we participate in things. You want to change your lustful desires, you must change your habits. It's getting practical. He's getting practical which is great when Jesus gets practical for us. And every day, you must avoid certain situations. You must install certain computer softwares at home. You must create new habits. You must need to sever a relationship that may be very painful, and it may come at a great loss, but the alternative is a loss of your whole body. If there's a show on Netflix that you love, that you watch every week, but every three or four episodes or so, there's nudity in it. And you think, I'm going to try to fast forward it, but it's sometimes you don't get there in time, and sometimes you linger on it. And sometimes when the wife goes to bed early, you maybe rewind it and accidentally watch it again. You need to stop watching that show. But I really like it. It has dragons in it. Make a commitment. Draw the line. Draw the line that you will absolutely, without any compromise, watch a movie or show where you know there's going to be nudity in it, where you know you're going to be tempted, where you know you are going to lust. No show is worth that. It is worth serious sacrifice. So serious that Jesus even evokes the image and the reality of hell when talking about the dangers of lust. Unless you learn to deal with the uniqueness and the creation and tension of sex, things will fall apart. Things will decay. Things will burn. Things will spread all kinds of destruction in your life. 
Lust is another god. It's a god of our appetite, and left to itself will lead to an exercise of, of sinful passions. It will lead to sexual immorality. It will lead often to infidelity, and many times it will lead to divorce. All because you were enticed by this appetite. And so the solution is to have a greater, to have a new perspective and to engage in the world in different ways. But what is, what is the greater aim? These are some practical things, but what is the, the greater aim? Why talk about lust and divorce together? And I thought, I thought a long time about this. I thought about why, why does Jesus talk about lust and divorce together? What is the point of this brief time? And then why does he go into a bigger talk on divorce and remarriage later in chapter 19? Well, I think Jesus is pointing for us. He is pointing for us. He wants to aim at the real point of all of this. You see, the point of this passage is, you know, try to lust less. The point of this isn't stay, stay married. The point is something far greater. The point is found in the mystery of marriage itself. It is in this forever bond of the covenant of marriage. Elsewhere in the Bible, in Ephesians specifically, we're told that there's no greater human relationship no greater human relationship capable of representing the relationship between Jesus and the church than the relationship between a husband and his wife. The reason why that lust and infidelity and marriage and divorce are mentioned in one breath is that sex is designed to be a covenant activity, not a consumer activity. And sex outside of the biblical marriage lacks integrity because it isolates one kind of union without having the whole life communion and union. Marriage is meant to be a picture of the gospel. Jesus is pointing us to the gospel. He is not mentioned specifically in here, but he's pointing to himself. At the wedding altar where the husband gives himself to his wife, Jesus gives himself up for the church by dying for her. He went to the cross and paid the penalty for our sins, removing our guilt and our condemnation so that we could be united with him forever. Our greater aim in all of this is God's covenantal love is expressed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God does not break his promises. God keeps his promises. He hates divorce because it is a promise broken. It is a covenant communion that is severed. The marriage vows should never be broken because God's covenant vows to us are never broken. Marriage and the gospel are meant to explain one another. If we want to know the gospel, we should look at a Christian marriage. And if we want to know what a Christian marriage looks like, we should look at the gospel. Both of them should speak to one another. They should teach each other. They should inform the other. The gospel of Jesus says that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. And that is why divorce, infidelity, and even lust are so destructive. So destructive to the gospel, how we understand it, how we live in the gospel. just want you to look at a list of these comparisons between lust and what it does and what we talked about and what the gospel is. Lust is, is so impersonal, and yet the gospel of Jesus is, is deeply personal. Lust is superficial and stays on the surface. It only is union in one way, and yet the gospel is, is profoundly meaningful. 
Lust is a, is a temporary thrill. It's a temporary erotic thrill. And the gospel of Jesus becomes more and more satisfying over time. It delivers on the promise. The more we indulge in, the more we desire it and want it, it becomes more satisfying to our heart. It does not get less satisfying. It becomes more beautiful. Lust is enslaving, and the gospel of Jesus provides freedom from sin. Lust isolates us from one another, and in the gospel, Jesus reconciles us to one another. Lust is selfish, and the gospel is Jesus forsaking his own interests for ours. The gospel fills our hearts with God's love so that you can handle it when your spouse fails to love you as he or she should. So what, what can we do? What do we do? This is going to sound a little weird, I think, at first for men, but I want you to get the meaning. If you want to be a good husband to your wife, you must be first a good bride to Jesus. If you want to love your wife well, you must love Jesus even more. Women, if you desire to be a good wife to your husband, you must first be a good bride to Jesus. He must be the lover of your soul. He must satisfy your needs. He must love you. He must meet your heartfelt needs. He must give you security and comfort. This means that if we want to be a good wife or husband, we must first make Jesus our greatest treasure and greatest pursuit of all. If we want to be pure of heart and, and have pure eyes and faithful hands, we must first cast every thought and every desire and commit every action to the honor of Jesus. If you believe statistics, then you believe that, that 50 to 60% of, of all marriages end in divorce. And if you believe in statistics, you know that that is not much different for Christians and in the church. And what that tells me is that the majority of you, if I had you raise your hands, which I won't ask you to, but I would imagine the majority of you have been deeply touched by divorce. Maybe, maybe a parent, maybe yourself, maybe a child, a son or daughter who has been through the pain of divorce. Maybe you have the shame or regret or pain as a result of a marriage ending or the, even the pain of a marriage starting that that you wish never did. There's so much more to say, and I won't be able to speak fully to it all right now, but here, here's what I want to leave you with. This experience of deep repentance and salvation by grace through the cross of Jesus means that there can be a deeply fulfilling love relationship with Jesus that covers every regret, that covers every feeling of shame or sorrow, that, that fills every lost dream and every unmet expectation. It means that the grace of God is so big and so powerful that your sins are not unforgivable, that your pain is, cannot, will not be turned to joy, whether you are married or, un, or, or once were married or no longer married, or whether you are single, the real marriage that our soul needs is the union with Jesus through faith. If you're hurting today, let this be an invitation, an invitation to the grace of God, an invitation to the heart of God, the lover of your soul, 
that, that is not based on your ability, your character to get it right. It is not based on your track record, but it is based on Jesus' track record. It is based on his love for you. And we know that we are maybe deeply wounded by the realities of this pain, but God's grace is bigger. It is sufficient for you. He loves you so much. Rest in him. Let's pray.